screen above my head that we look at this morning so you can read them from the screen. We're going to look at Colossians 3. We're going to start reading from verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Those are the verses that we're going to spend some time looking at this morning. Now, what I normally say before reading the scripture is that I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, so if some of the words were different, as you were reading in a different translation, perhaps the NIV, for example, uh, then do not fret. Um, as we go through, as per normal, we'll look at some of these different words and phrases, what they mean, and sometimes both translations can help us to, to get to grips with that. So we're looking at this. Slaves and masters. When we've been in Colossians recently, we've been in this section, which uh, in my Bible is entitled Rules for uh, Christian Households. In other words, um, Paul has been spelling out this wonderful gospel, and now he's come to this section where in effect he's saying, and here is how to work out the fact that Jesus is your Lord. In your marriage, here is how to work it out. Here is how to show the power of the gospel in the life you lead, um, in your marriage. Likewise, with, with children and with parents, here is how to live as Christ would intend you. And it goes on to talk now about slaves and masters. Now, perhaps there's no surprise that as Paul is writing to this church in Colossae, he does address both wives and husbands. The fact that wives and husbands were there together in the assembled church surely is not too unusual. That's a, that's a good thing, an obvious thing. That children were there with their parents. Again, perhaps that doesn't strike us as particularly unusual. Now we come to this section, slaves and masters. As we go on in a minute, we'll, we'll get on to some other points, but just to see right at the beginning, this is something that is quite awesome, that the power of the gospel meant that you had a church that in it had people that never would have really come together naturally. There'd never be a, an easy affinity between slaves and masters to think, yes, we're going to come and be part of this church together. What God's gospel had done was something quite outstanding. I mean, can you imagine what their core groups must have looked like with slaves and masters? Maybe it was slaves leading the core group, masters going along to it. We just don't know. But it starts to raise all these fascinating questions. How did they handle this? How did they work through this? But what we see is the church is a place for all people. The gospel is for all people, and therefore the church is to be a place where all people come. Uh, it's not a case of, ah, oh, I'm not quite sure they fit in, or people saying to themselves, oh, I'm not quite sure I fit in here, uh, because I don't seem to quite fit the norm in this place. Paul's not writing to one church, the, the church of the slaves, and then over here to the church of the masters. It might have been tricky, it might have been uh, brought up some tensions or some frustrations at times, but we have here a church where people from all walks of life have been gloriously and wonderfully saved. So that's what we see there. Slaves and masters, both in the same church, both seeking to glorify God. We look at these different types of relationships and we see that maybe Paul is addressing them here because they are the very sorts of relationships 
where tensions can arise. So people have come into this wonderful salvation, come into this kingdom, and suddenly there are repercussions, there are implications. Well, this is how I used to live. This is what our marriage is like. How do we live now? How do, we, how do I relate? How do husband and wife relate now that we're, that we're saved? Or that now that I'm saved, my, my spouse isn't. How do we work this one through? Or children getting saved and working out, well, how do, I, how do I relate to my parents now that I'm saved, they're not? Or the whole family is saved, but they've still got to work things through. How, how do we relate together now? Take that and kind of multiply it a few times, and you seem to get slaves and masters. Okay, in the world, we knew how to relate. Before any of us became Christians, we knew kind of uh, what to expect of each other. Now we're saved. Now I'm saved. How do I relate to my master now? Or a master gets saved. How do I, how do I treat my slaves now? Um, it's quite astounding. Now, it raises so many questions that perhaps we won't go into here uh, to do with the fact that well, slavery, thankfully, is something that has passed away. Um, Paul is certainly not kind of condoning and supporting slavery here, but he's saying his concern is for people. His concern is, okay, in the circumstances you're in, here is how to live. Here is how to walk in Christ. He's concerned about people and their relationship with God, and he wants them to know in the circumstances they're in, right at that point in time, okay, how do I show? How is it that Christ, being my Lord, will affect my life? And so we're going to run through. We're going to look at four things this morning. Four things, actually, whether you, in a sense, regard yourself as a slave or someone, in other words, who is under the authority of someone else. So you go to work and you have a boss. You have a line manager, someone who uh, you are subject to, someone who uh, supervises what you do and, to a certain extent, tells you what to do. So there's that kind of relationship in there. It might actually be uh, that you... You don't yet, you're not yet in the workplace, uh, but you are in school or you are in college. And in that position, you are um, under the authority of other people, of other masters, the headmaster, other teachers, people who have a measure of authority in terms of telling you um, what to do. It might be that actually you're self-employed. And so you think, well, how does this apply to me because I am my own boss? In a sense, no one tells me what to do, and I don't really tell anyone else what to do. I work for myself. And so if that was the case for you, the sort of authority that you're under is perhaps that of the state. And the kind of rules and regulations that govern what you do, and paying tax. Things where actually you do have um, a master, uh, and we have people that we need to uh, respect in that way. So it might be in that way. It might be that what you do, the as it were, the work that you do is not paid. It is hard work. It is serious and good work. It could be raising your children. You don't get paid for it, but you have there um, a situation where you're, if not exactly a master, then again, you have a, a, an element of authority and that you want to do your work well, as it were. That's what we're going to be looking at today. The nature of work, what God says about it, and what God is like, and how seeing what God is like helps us in what we're doing. What this passage seems to be talking about to both slaves and masters, whether you are supervised or supervising, is to work as though you are working for the Lord. To recognize this, whatever position that you have in your life, the Lord Jesus Christ is your Lord. He is your master. We have him as our master. Ultimately, we're answering 
to him. Ultimately, we want to do his will. Wherever we find ourselves in life, ultimately we want to please him. And so we're going to look at four things about God, our heavenly master, that help us and shape the way we live out our, our work, live out our lives, week to week, day to day, in the here and now. And the first one is this. What we see standing back and looking at this kind of passage in general terms is this, that God is interested. God is interested in what you do. God is interested in your occupation. God is interested in how you spend your time and how you earn your living. That your occupation is not insignificant in God's kingdom. In fact, it can be a potent witness to unbelievers as we demonstrate the gospel, not just in what we say, in words that we say, but in how we do, in what we live, in how we act and interact with those that we that we work with. This is not something that um, is kind of a foreign concept in the New Testament. We see where Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says there, 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll read from partway through verse 10 to start with. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. There is Paul is expressing this concern that people live properly before outsiders, that they might see how we live and be, be affected by it. And it shows some it show people a new and a different way of living. It shows some it shows a lifestyle that is following God's way. And so when also Peter uh, wrote in, in the book 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Or perhaps we'll we'll read from verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So again, our lives are to be lived out in such a way that people on the outside, people that we interact on a daily basis, can see, oh, there is something different here. And it's not just hearing the words, it's not just hearing the message there, but it's actually seeing our deeds and glorifying God on the day of visitation. And so it could be that actually it's in the way that we work. It's in the Monday to Friday. It's in the nine to five, which is one key to revival. A key to people being affected by God is because they're seeing something different. They're seeing something distinctive. They're seeing that there are people who are living in such a way that honors God. And so when questions arise in their own minds, they're going to come to you. They're going to come and find you out and say, okay, I've noticed things about you. Now, tell me, what, what is this all about? And so whatever you do for a living can be used by God to glorify him and to show people how good God is. You know, we can often ask each other the question, if we're getting to know each other in conversation, oh, what do you do for a living? Uh, how, what do you do for a living? And uh, you, know, you might get the answer, I don't know if everyone has got this answer, I'm an astronaut. And if someone came up to you and said, if you're in conversation with someone, my guess is you'd want to pursue that a little bit further. Wow, what does that mean? If someone comes up to you and you're having a conversation, someone you don't know so well, what do you do for a living? You're just getting to know them. Uh, I'm a cleaner. Oh. Well, 
nice to meet you, I'll, um, I'll just be over here, see you soon. And we can give more interest, as it were, to the astronauts than we do to the cleaner, but actually God is interested in being glorified by both. God is inter- interested in, in both of those people. Now John Stott writes this, People need to know that their daily work is important to God. Indeed, it is essential to furthering God's purposes for the world. They are not in a waiting room designed for those who are not doing Christian work, nor are they in some second league because they do not preach every weekend. What they do, they are called to do as unto the Lord, because it is in service to Him. So it's not insignificant. Actually, God is our master, and he is interested in our occupation. He's interested, as it were, in being glorified uh, by how we live and by what we do. And so there's no day that's insignificant in God's sight. We have the the special days, living for the weekend. We just have to get through Monday to Friday. It's a bit of a drudgery, but if we get to the weekend, then we'll have a socially or spiritually, we'll have some pick-me-ups and then we'll be able to just about plough through the next week, just about holding on until maybe Friday and Saturday comes and Sunday, and where we get our, our pick-me-up again. No day is insignificant with God. In Matthew 28, Jesus is talking to his disciples there, and gives them a great promise as he's about to return to, to heaven. In Matthew 28, verse 20, He says there, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This wonderful promise to see us through in everything we're doing. We were singing earlier on, forever God is faithful, forever God is with us. But God is not with us on a part-time basis. I'll see you at the weekends. I've got a universe to go look after. That's my full-time job. Um, I will squeeze you in um, over the course of the weekend. We'll have some great time together. Um, You just crack on with your work, you know, I know you've just got to, you've got to live, you've got to earn some money, so just get on with it, I'll see you at the weekend. Now, it's like God is saying, I'm with you, to the end of the age, I'm with you always. And Terry Virgo, writing on that verse recently, commented, it could almost be said, literally, I am with you all the days. I'm with you on your Monday, I'm with you on your Tuesday, your Wednesday, your Thursday, your Friday, and your Saturday and Sunday. Forever God is with us, forever God is interested in our occupation in how we're doing um, in the workplace, in what's going on there. So God is interested as our master. The second thing we see about God as our master is that he is to be feared or revered. I think the NIV might use that word revere or to be feared. That's not an inappropriate thing. It is a right response that we fear God. Now earthly masters don't see everything that happens They don't see into our hearts. They don't see everything that we choose to do. They don't see how we kind of operate in the workplace. Now, what that can lead to is this. Um, What Paul calls here eye service. That's not some kind of MOT for your eyesight, but eye service, what the NIV describes, is not only when their eye is on you. There's a kind of work, there's a kind of way of working that changes according to whether, you're, whether we're being watched or not, whether someone is there looking over our shoulder. So working hard when we know we're being watched, giving the right external appearance, um, 
but that's only when it suits, only when the boss is around to see what we're doing. Now, that can happen with this earthly master, because as soon as the earthly master goes out the door, they're not necessarily aware of what's going on. And also, with an earthly master, what can happen is we get into uh, people-pleasing, try trying to win the favour of those in a position of authority. And so, to them, it's yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, to please the boss, to please them, to win their favour. But then later on with colleagues, it can be, oh, you'll never guess what they've just asked me to do. <laughs> to them, wanting to please the boss, so we'll say, oh, yeah, sure. In with colleagues later on, we just want to please them. And so maybe we'll just kind of grumble along with them in order to kind of get in with them. And to please ourselves, maybe just sit back, take it easy, slack off when no one's around. Now, that can happen with earthly masters. With God as our heavenly master, he does see everything. And he does know our hearts. So when no one else is around, he is aware of what's going on. And he's saying, no, don't just work by way of eye service. Don't just work in a way to, to please the boss. Work to please me. And I'm always aware of what's going on, even if others don't. So we see in Proverbs 5, verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. We see similarly in Proverbs 15 and verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. He's never a God who, who sleeps or slumbers, who's unaware of circumstances uh, in our workplace, never unaware of what we're doing. So therefore, let's obey our earthly masters in everything with a sincerity of heart. If you're in a position where you are under the authority of another person, work in such a way as to please God. And that will also bless them. But the ultimate aim is, yeah, I want to please our Heavenly Father. I want to please our Heavenly Master. This is one way in which we're working out our salvation, working it out with fear and trembling, working with all our hearts, working heartily. And therefore, if we're in a position of authority or supervising over other people, it's a slightly different application in verse 1 of chapter 4 in Colossians. Treat your slaves justly and fairly knowing also that you have a master in heaven. Be aware, You've got, we've got a master in heaven who's watching over, and so that should influence, that should infiltrate everything that we're doing, uh, whether, like I say, we're in this position of oversight or of being supervised by another. So God is to be feared, he's to be revered. Thirdly, God is fair, and God doesn't do favoritism. He doesn't do uh, partiality. He doesn't give us a preferential treatment uh, because of our position in this world. Think right now, if you were a slave in the Roman world, the chances are you were downtrodden, hurt, abused, you'd been treated unfairly. That was your lot. It could be tempting, therefore, to the, for the slave to think, well, now that I'm a Christian... God knows, God understands that I've been through this really tough experience. God knows really that I'm not, I can't really respect the people that are over me. God knows that if, if I do a misdemeanor, he'll let me off because he knows how much I've been under the cosh from other people. And yet, God doesn't let any of us off in some sort of sentimental way. Oh yes, I, 
understand for, for other people, stealing would be wrong, but for you, it's okay. I, you know, I understand what you've been through, so I'll let that one go through. Yeah, likewise for masters, those in oversight over others, not, not free to do as they please. Yeah, God, it's me. You can, you can cut me some slack. You know the sort of position I've got, the authority I've got. You know what these people are like. And uh, you put me in this very important position. So just yeah, let me get this one through. God wants to be honoured by both. Knowing this, that God is fair. He's interested in our work. He's to be feared and he is a fair God. He doesn't do favoritism. Fourthly, we see this, which is kind of a positive flip side to some of those others about fear and God being fair, is this, fourthly, God rewards. Now, with earthly masters, there can be exploitation. There can be a sense of unfairness. In reality, there can be things that happen that are just not good, not right. And in the Roman world, a slave's lot, as we've said, was not great. Basically, it depended on the character of the master, so um, they could rise to a place of trust and, uh, and be looked after and be given um, decent conditions to work in. But under Roman law, a slave never really stood to inherit anything. They never got to receive anything good other than perhaps retribution from an earthly master. They wouldn't receive something. They, they would do their duty, and whatever happened as a result was their lot. They had little right of appeal. And so we can translate that onto God and think, well, if God is a, a heavenly master, maybe he's like some of the earthly masters we've experienced here, but God is different again. He's to be feared because he sees everything, but also he's just to be um, honoured and respected because also in seeing everything, he's in a position to reward. He's in a position to, to see what happens. So an earthly master won't be aware of the sacrifices that are made and may not give just and fair treatment, but we have a God who is just, who is righteous, who sees everything and who knows everything. And so regardless of how... Um, our work might be regarded by the world, what sort of status we have in the world's eyes, that is not a hindrance for God giving a reward. So in verse 24 or verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now some occupations don't really seem highly regarded in the world, but if they are done as though for Christ, he will reward you. Nothing done by a Christian is ignored by God. Nothing is done in vain. Insignificant status on earth is no hindrance to God giving great rewards. As I was thinking about that, I was wondering about people who work heartily for the Lord in jobs that don't get much accolade, maybe don't even get paid. I thought about mothers here whose occupation is raising their children and how for you, Lord, the Lord being your master means that you have prioritized raising your children. Maybe even 
forfeiting, setting aside a career where you could have earned a fair amount of money. You could have done quite well for yourself. You could have, um, you and your husband now might have quite a significant lifestyle and wealth and so on had you both continued to work because you're both doing quite well in your chosen professions. And now what you find is that the, the world doesn't really necessarily value what you're doing or notice it particularly. Or if it does notice it, it's because it, they're kind of asking the question, well, why haven't you gone back to work yet? Why aren't you pursuing your career? Why aren't you uh, going up the ladder, as it were? And there can be an implied, an implied kind of statement, well, what a waste. What a waste of talent that you're spending your time raising your family when you could have been earning all of this money. I was reminded of a situation where some people observed someone, disciples observed someone who had made an amazing sacrifice on Jesus' behalf, not on Jesus' behalf, for Jesus' glory. They'd made an amazing sacrifice, and that was their response. What a waste. This, this could have been so more significant than this. It happens in Mark and chapter 14. where Jesus was anointed at Bethany. And it describes a situation there where the woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, from verse 3, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Something that just seemed ridiculous. This ointment... That was, that was poured over Jesus' head was very costly. We're told that it cost 300 denarii. That's how much it could have been sold for, which could have been the equivalent of a reasonable salary for a year in those times. And so there are people amongst us, people you've given up. You've given up a salary. You've given up something. And the world says, what a waste. What, what a waste. You, you can't really change the world like that, can you? What are you going to achieve by, by living that kind of life? And whereas Jesus says to this woman, I believe Jesus is saying to people here this morning, no, what she's done is a beautiful thing. What she's done is a beautiful thing. People are doing work and it just doesn't get recognized. People who are working in jobs that um, is, is perhaps what you find mundane. And in those situations, things where you've done it because God is your master. You're wanting to serve him, do things well and excellently because Jesus is your Lord. It doesn't go unnoticed by your heavenly father. It doesn't go unnoticed when people have uh, given up careers. Maybe even for you, staying in Sheffield meant never really getting the job um, that your degree called out for. But you've stayed here. You've got stuck into the life of a church. You've decided, no, for now, as long as God tells me, I'm, I'm putting down my flag here. 
This is where I belong. This is the people I belong with. I'm going to serve God here. I'm going to work um, in such a way as I want to glorify him. And God says it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing when people serve in that kind of way. And it's amazing also to consider this, that God has allowed us to know beforehand, before we get to heaven, that we will receive rewards. God could have kept it a secret, but he wanted this as an incentive for us, that we would actually be rewarded. Nothing goes unnoticed. Nothing is uh, kind of outside of God's interest. You know, we are encouraged to store up treasure in heaven. In all of this, Paul is trying to lift our eyes above a sense of drudgery, above a sense of just, oh, it's the Monday to Friday grind, or whatever your shift pattern might be. It's just that sense of, this is what my life involves. God is trying to lift our eyes above that sense of, of drudgery to something actually that is joyful. We're able to do something joyfully, with gladness, with sincerity of heart, because we know God is our master. God doesn't miss anything. God's going to reward. God wants us to please him. God might use what we do in the workplace on the Monday morning to actually pave the way for his kingdom to break out. Now we can think of work and, and, and church and, and family over here, missing out the fact that actually we are, we are always the church. The church is not where we turn up on a Sunday. The church is who we are. So right now, we are the church worshipping together and listening to his word. On a Friday night when we gather there, we are the church that is praying together. When we um, get together on other occasions at family nights and sometimes in core groups, we are the church breaking bread. We are the church fellowshipping together. We are the church seeking to honour him. Monday to Friday, we are the church in the workplace. We are God's people wherever we go seeking to bring a demonstration of the power, a demonstration of the wonder of God's gospel into those places. Again, it's, it, it, it strikes people as different. They see something, not just in the, what we say, not just in word, but in deed as well. Things that we're doing, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that could be the way that God plans to to open up people to then come and know about him as we, as we get into that. Introducing people into Alpha courses, introducing people into other things that are going on, all because of what people have seen of us where we work. We are God's people. We are God's church wherever we are. And God wants to use us wherever we are to give glory to his name. Let's pray together.